Welcome to the Deeply Discussing Movie Podcast. Every week, four to six of us get together, discuss a movie, and then one of us suggests a, another movie for us to watch and discuss. All the movies are available from the major streaming services, so you can participate with us. I'm your host, Dale Maxfield. I'm joined this week by Aaron Caldwell. Hello. Alicia Walker. Hi. And Nathan McKinney. Hello. And uh, today's suggestion was Alicia's. It was the movie Dinner at Eight, 1933 uh, movie with Gene Harlow, multiple Barrymores, multiple, multiple uh, <laughs> stars of the time. It was a kind of a big all-star cast for its day. Um, but before we get into that, we'll talk about what we've been watching lately um, here in quarantine, uh, starting with uh, Aaron. Why don't you... Tell us what you've been up to lately. And I saw on Netflix that they had posted Supermarket Sweep. <laughs> and so Ooh. I watched like all of those that were available. Um, that was pretty fun. Um, outside of that, I just started rewatching Warehouse 13, uh, which was a pretty good show on uh, sci fi. Um, that that's pretty a much a pretty it. good show or a pretty good show on sci-fi. <laughs> <laughs> well, what I mean, it was. I felt it was excellent for sci-fi, but I thought it was a pretty good show overall. Excellent for what prompt you to do, go ahead. Are you rewatching it or are you just watching it for the first time? Oh, I'm rewatching it. This is like my third time through. Yeah, I. Uh, the only reason I ever watched the sci-fi channel was because they had mystery science theater and we didn't have it from our cable provider for like the first year that mystery science theater was on. And so we were very, very anxious to get it. And then as soon as mystery science theater was over, I was like, yeah, I don't need this anymore. Where uh, warehouse 13 launched around the same time the show Eureka did. I think it might've been yeah. a year or so before. Um, and in, in the first season of warehouse 13, most of the actors and actresses in Eureka show up as random characters. And then around season three, they merge the shows into a shared universe. And so now all those characters are playing their characters from Eureka. It's very strange. Yeah. There's like a two episode arc right in the middle of like season three. Where yeah. the warehouse thirteen folks end up on their show and Eureka shows up. It was just a you know typical network cross pollination marketing attempt. Yeah, I think that was pretty um, pretty uncommon at sci-fi though, right? That sounds more like a CW thing or more of a recent development where the crossovers come from. I don't know either of these shows, so I don't know. Yeah, I, was like, I, I don't think sci-fi had that many shows at that point. When I was watching <laughs> sci-fi, they had Farscape, and that was about it. I think, you know, sci-fi, I mean, to say that they, don't, they didn't do it very often is also to acknowledge the fact that sci-fi didn't have a lot of shows that could share universe. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so... The first shows I remember doing that was like uh, Law and Order and Homicide Life on the Street. Hell, uh, The Daily Show and Stephen Colbert spent like four years in a row where Stephen Colbert would come in on the very tail end of uh, The Daily Show just to promote the, next, the very next show that was about to come on the air. <laughs> do you remember that? Uh, I, I do. It, by yeah. the way, Mork was uh, Happy Days. Oh, that's right. Happy Days and Laverne and Shirley were both off of Happy... Or ha Mork and Laverne Mork and Shirley and were both Laverne off of Happy Shirley, Days. Yeah. yeah, that's right. I don't know. Like As far as like cheap science fiction, fantasy uh, stuff on TV from like the 90s and early 2000s that I watched, like probably the most obscure is Battlestar Galactic, or not uh, Battlestar. I always mix the two up. Babylon 5, I watched. Babylon 5 was good. I liked that in Alien Nation. Babylon Those 5 was really hard to watch because it kept changing networks and times and all of that, but it was worth it because it was a serial show. They had the whole thing mapped out before they started shooting it. Um, 
and they got to mostly make it the way they wanted to, but uh, one of the network changes forced them to change the lead actor on the show because they didn't think he was appealing enough. So they had to kind of rewrite some of the way the characters worked so that that guy wasn't as important anymore. Well, obviously, Battlestar was probably sci-fi's biggest hit, but uh, the show, I think, that ran the longest on sci-fi might actually be Stargate or iterations of Stargate. Yeah, SG-1, I think, was on in the 90s at some point. S- well, what, SG-1. Was Battlestar Galactica a sci-fi show? Oh, yes, it was. As was Caprica, its follow-up, which could have been really good if they'd stuck with it. SG- SG-1, it started out on Showtime. Yeah, it moved around a bunch, too. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, MacGyver was on it. That's like all I remember about it. Uh, Nathan, there's actually there's act, there's actually a pretty good video out there of um, there's some guy that basically says he's talking about why sci-fi just needs to end already. I, it's just recently put out and he talks about it all the way up to current date, like with Winona, Winona, Winona Earp, I can barely say that. And the other big show that's, they've been trying to kind of hold out. Uh, but he talks about why sci-fi has just jerked itself around so many years. You know, they spent a lot of time doing like ghost hunter crap mm-hmm. and uh, even WWE. Yeah. <laughs> Which isn't even sci-fi. Well, and I think I probably watched the Ghost Hunter crap more than I have the other shows, but well, but I mean, me. it was it, it was on brand, but not like it was like yeah. a cheap network way. The only other they show that reality. I can think of that was probably an interesting idea idea for sci-fi was the Face Off. Mm. Yeah, are you that guys familiar a, that with that one? one? Yeah, the only thing sci-fi ever seems to do is make like short-term plans. And, like, if it doesn't work this season, it's not going to get another season. And they do that every single year. Uh, Nathan, how about you? What have you been watching? Oh, we've been all over the map. But I think the one thing that sticks out to me was I finally watched Smithereens, um, which I have seen, like, on streaming services and sort of thing many, many times. And if you've ever seen the picture of it, it's got a picture of a gal with checkered glasses on and quite frankly i thought it was a movie about the band the smithereens they came much (laughs) later than that i think yeah well not a whole lot later they i actually looked it up because i wasn't sure their um wikipedia page says they started in like 80 okay and the movies movies right about that same time so the best i can figure is they all saw the movie really liked it and decided to name their name (laughs) the smithereens because of the movie and probably adopted the whole checker pastiche just for their own kicks and giggles. Um, and I don't think it hurt that the um, Fast Time at Ridgemont High kind of had that same checker thing with the shoes. But anyways, the movie has zero to do with the band The Smithereens. Uh, the movie is actually um, the first feature film created by the same person who did uh, not Fast Times. It's a female director. Susan Seidelman. Oh, it's Desperately Seeking Desperately, oh, so, uh, seeking, desperately Susan. seeking Susan. That's right. Thank you. I completely zoned on that. But it, it feels a lot like Desperately Seeking Susan, quite frankly, because it's a lot of like <laughs> New York and... It's listed as a sequel. Oh, is it really? Yeah, it says uh, sequel to The Smithereens, Desperately Seeking Susan. Well, I think it's maybe a sequel more in spirit than that maybe so i i get the impression from dale's gesture that he's not a fan of Seth desperately seeking <laughs> no. susan we'll, we'll pardon him for that for a moment because it's probably a you know a touchstone for a lot of people that grew up in that era it's not a great movie but it is of its era and it does a fun pre- depiction of that era um smithereens is more uh uh it's it's a darker film i guess you could say uh it's got a very simple story there's not like a a missing person thing going on or anything like that it's just about a a gal who moved from new jersey to new york to be a part of the punk scene only to find out that the punk scene went to california and uh she decides to do all kinds of things to make friends that'll get her to california and she's a little bit of a yeah 
I always it's associated I the checker it. thing with uh, with like the ska scene of that same era. It probably is. I and yeah, yeah, because I is it like the, the specials uh, and the specials? Yeah, that had that same thing. Well, that's probably right. Anything Anyways, else? the only star in that movie. Oh no. Never mind. That's all we need to talk about on the Smithereens. I, I was going to say there's no stars in it really. The only star in it is actually um, the guy that was in television. Didn't went on to his own thing. Brad Reen, Richard Hell. Richard Hell. Yeah, I mean, the, what it has in common with Desperately Seeking Susan is like it, it, it's the old bait and switch. Desperately Seeking Susan was like everyone went to see Madonna and got Rosanna Arquette instead. It's like she's fine, yeah. but this is supposed to be a Madonna movie, and she's barely in it. Yeah, that was probably by design. Uh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Alicia, how about you? Well, um, I started watching uh, season two of Castle Rock uh, this week, and it started pretty slow, and I wasn't sure how much I was going to get into it. It's got Lizzie Kaplan in the second season. Uh, and I got kind of frustrated because I'd actually rewatched season one in preparation for season two and then started season two and was like, I don't think these are connected. I think it's like Fargo and they're standalone. But I don't know if you guys have watched it, but as the season continued, they were indeed connected, which I didn't realize. And it actually got a lot better. Uh, so I ended up really enjoying it and kind of speed watching those ones at the end. Uh, and Tim Robbins is in it, which was kind of fun and refreshing to see him again, especially in a series like that. It was a lot of fun. So that was good. And then I think maybe the big movie that we watched this week that we really enjoyed was uh, Thief, which is Michael Mann's first movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I'm trying to remember now who's the main actor in it. For some reason, I'm blanking, but uh, he plays the older brother in the Godfather movies. You know. Oh, James Caan? Thank James you, Con. James Caan. Okay. Yeah, exactly. I should have remembered just from our Star Trek movies lately. But yeah, it was fantastic. Um, It was really good. You could totally see the Michael Mann vibe starting right away. It's very Miami Vice. A lot of stuff you even see in probably my favorite Michael Mann movie, Heat, that comes later. Um, You've got great soundtrack by Tangerine Dream that kind of put them on the map. Uh, it was really good. It's it's a your typical kind of heist movie. I can't say it's super unpredictable, but um, really enjoyed it and loved. I think it's going to be one we come back to every once in a while. It was really good. Right on. So backing up, what was the show that you were watching about? Uh, Castle Rock. That's the Stephen King show that's oh, right. on Hulu. Okay. That's based yeah. kind of yeah on kind of his universe and different characters and stuff from his books. Aaron, did you watch that? I watched the first season and, and I really liked it, but I just haven't got around to watching season two yet. I think Zach watched it. Yeah, too. that was kind of me too. So it took till now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did. I, I did think of you the other day, Dale. Um, I, I saw somebody was. I, I think HBO Max might have been somebody else, but they were talking about remaking Under the Dome, <laughs> and I know how much you liked Under the Dome. <laughs> My God. I mean, if they made it a little bit more faithful to the book, it could be better. Um, but that was a show that just was terrible. It, well, they made the mistake of not making it a limited series, and then they just didn't know what the hell to do with it after the first like six episodes. Once they once they strayed from the the actual story of the book, it's just we're stuck with these characters forever, and um. Dean Norris was good in it. I liked his uh, his character. Or you know, I, I read the book too. I read the book before I saw the show, and so I was like, you know, this could be interesting because it's not a bad. Um, as far as supernatural Stephen King books go, it's not that bad. Um, they don't try to explain a lot of it. It's just sort of this weird thing that happens, and um, Dean Norris plays Big Jim who's sort of the de facto head of the government of this town, um, who's trying to keep what's really happening a secret because he's like profiteering off of a bunch of stuff that he's a bunch of shady stuff he's doing, um, behind the scenes. And 
they're just uh, there's just this weird energy dome all the way around like it, th- this massive dome around this little town um, and nobody can get in or out so it, it, I don't know about you guys but I'm somebody now that that it's a possibility now that it's an option I often think about different things and how they would be better as a limited series mm-hmm. I think that all the time. Like, I'll watch an old show and be like, that needed to be a limited series. Or, like, for example, I went and saw The Goldfinch, and I had read the book, and I was like, that should have been several episodes of a limited series instead of all that one movie. So Yeah, we did almost 100 podcast episodes about a show that should have been a limited series. (laughs) It's called Dexter. (laughs) I was just thinking that myself. If Dexter had ended with season one, it would have been, like, one of the best shows of all time, but... They couldn't. They couldn't do it. <laughs> couldn't let it go. Um, well, I basically watched two things this week. Um, I had a bunch of stuff going on, and I was doing a bunch of editing for um, my movie riffing project. Um, but I ended up watching this show called Doctor Foster. Has anyone heard of this? Um, I found it on Netflix. I think it just came to Netflix recently because um, it was either in the top 10 or it was recommended to me after I watched something else. It's uh, two seasons. uh, It's a BBC show, five one-hour episodes per season. And it's about a woman who... um, I'm going to give away some of the plot of the first episode because it's kind of critical to understanding what the show's about. So she finds out basically that her husband has been cheating on her And that not only that, but pretty much all of her friends and acquaintances and work colleagues knew about it, and she didn't know about it. But she finds out in such a way that the husband doesn't know that she knows, and nor do any of these other people know that she knows. And so the first season is her, like, essentially exacting her revenge and plotting the perfect way to get rid of this guy. And then... uh, the first season wraps up pretty tight. Like it has a pretty good, like this could end here. The second season, um, the first episode you feel like, Oh my God, why are you doing this to yourself again? Why is this happening again? And then it just gets really, really good. Um, whereby the end of episode four, I was like, what else can they do? Like, my God, like this is just insane. And then it does end in enough of a cliffhanger that they could do a season three if they really wanted to. So, um, what is that on? It's on Netflix. It's called Doctor Foster. Um, the uh, Jodie Comer from uh, Killing Eve is on it. Uh, I, I think this came out though before Killing Eve. It's like 2015 or something was the first season. So I think it's like what she did before that. Um, and there's a two year break between the two seasons. Um, like the, the couple, Dr. Foster and her, her husband or cheating husband have like a 12 year old son in the first season. And he's like 14 or 15 in the second season. So there's some time that goes by, um, between the two, but, uh, it's very like, melodramatic and insane and she's like like a hard character to root for a lot of the time but like the twists and turns are still so clever and interesting that it's it's kind of worth watching um it's kind of worth checking out or you know at least maybe giving the first episode a try and see if you see if you're into it Hmm. um and then the other thing i watched was athlete a which is a new netflix uh, documentary about the uh, USA gymnastics scandal, um, and it's maybe the first like twenty or thirty minutes is about um, abuse by the coaches, um, which is kind of how the story started, but then it expanded and got into uh, the Larry Nasser case, and then most of the rest of the movie is about how they. You know how someone came forward and talked about what Larry Nasser had done, and then a bunch of people came forward, and then they found out that this had been reported to USA Gymnastics 
for a long period of time and they had uh, never contacted the authorities, which they're required to do when someone alleges sexual abuse of a minor. So um, it's a good documentary. Um, definitely more information than, you know, just what you would pick up on the news from all of that. And it's very much about telling the survivor story rather than a deep criminal uh, biography of Larry Nasser himself. Like he's there, but he's not like the focus of the, of the film. Um, still very, <laughs> a very challenging watch. So, and that was it for me. Um, so Alicia, uh, suggested a movie we watched it it was called dinner at eight um aaron what did you think of dinner at eight Uh, man it was not what i thought it was gonna be when i first turned it on um i turned it on it starts up and and it's it's with older movies, you never really, I at least never assume that they're going to go really dark or anything. Um, they kind of stay lighthearted. You know, most of the older movies I watch are things like singing in the rain and funny face and, and stuff like that. Um, but man, all the characters in this have issues. (laughs) All of them. They're all broken people. And, uh, I thought it did a pretty good job of weaving everything together. Uh, some of the conversations between the characters were were really deep. And uh, seeing the... I think, uh, I think John Barrymore played the character of the... The actor, the, Larry Ronaldo. The aging actor. Yeah, he... Um, his descent uh, in, into his self pity, but uh, still, his descent was was pretty well shot. I, I really enjoyed that entire scene uh, with him. Um, overall, I thought the movie was good. Like, I, I would I would recommend people watch it. So I um, I started watching it and realized pretty quickly that I had seen it before. Um, I can't remember how it was recommended to me in the first place, um, but I did hear somebody talking about how it's like this classic movie and um, that it was like an inspiration for something else that I watched. Um, possibly Horace and Pete, uh, the Louis C.K. series. I think that might have been where I heard it. Uh, recommended before and um, I originally ended up downloading it and being kind of bored by it and watching it at like 125% speed um, because it just wasn't wasn't cutting along for me but this time I watched it in regular speed and uh, tried to try to really get involved in it and and let it let it work for me I think what threw me off about it the first time um, wasn't so much the tone of the movie, but that it's really like a series of character studies. It's not, there's not like a big arc necessarily from, from the beginning of the movie to the end, unless you're talking specifically about like um, what happens to the main couple, the Lionel Barrymore and Billy Burke, like they kind of have an arc um, based on all the other things that are happening in it, because it's their dinner party and it's his company that ends up getting screwed, but then unscrewed <laughs> by the end of it, because um, Jean Harlow puts her foot down and tells, you know, older Walter Matthau to knock it off. Um, <laughs> so it's 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 interesting in that way I think it's also helpful to look at it from the perspective of when this movie was new these were all major stars um, it was kind of one of the first like big all star um, huge cast kind of movies and so uh, you know audiences at the time would have been excited to watch um the long descent of 
John Barrymore's character or um, watch Gene Harlow be, you know, our Kardashian, essentially, um, on this thing. And so watching it from with with kind of those glasses on, I can see um, why it was popular, why it was interesting. I think that the Carlotta Vance character is hilarious. And I I do think that, you know, like IMDb listed as a comedy and a drama. I think it definitely has jokes. I think they're just they're so dated and they're so understated that they kind of only really work if you're if you're in that depression era mindset um, of what's funny and also the kind of like what we talked about with uh, uh, with the final line of Gaslight, um, how that was supposed to be so hilarious at the time, but it was because the actress playing it was like a famous actress and it's kind of like a Maggie Smith type modern role. So this Marie Dressler character is, she's a comic character for the most part. Um, she just has that one scene with the daughter. Um, and then I was looking for things this time around cause there was, uh, this is a pre-code movie and I was looking for things that they got away with in this that they wouldn't have been able to get away with uh, after the Hayes Code. And the only thing that really stuck out to me was when um, the daughter like jumps on John Barrymore and starts making out with him. Like that wouldn't have been approved by the censors after the Hayes Code. You you couldn't have two adults lying prone and making out like that. So, um, well, I think possibly possibly even the fact that she had been spending the night at the hotel it it yeah. seemed so yeah certainly that may have been something else there too. There just wasn't anything like well you know on fire about it. Um, there's I don't know I, I I read some things somewhere and I can't remember exactly what it is now, but there was some allusion in it to prostitution that they wouldn't have allowed. Um, mostly sex stuff because mm-hmm. that's what Americans are all uptight about. Um, there might be a little Gene Harlow side boob. Mm-hmm. So well, you mentioned when we were watching it, Alicia, that there was some dinner item, like something on the menu or something was something that they were like, Oh, they wouldn't have allowed that or something he traded in or I'm trying to remember what it was. There was something that they said that was kind of an allusion to something else. And I'm, I it was can't like remember. fish or something. It was, Oh, she the ordered clam? the replacement dish for the, some of the clam kind of stuff. Yeah, like, it was the, the oyster, replacement dish for the the lion thing, whatever that was. Mm-hmm. The oysters. Yeah. Instead of the aspic, maybe. Yeah. Um, mm. John Barrymore orders a caviar sandwich at one point, which is hilarious. It's like, what the <laughs> fuck are you thinking? Um, but yeah, uh, I, I, I think it's a good movie overall. I just don't think it's a movie that I'm going to go back to over and over again. Um, Nathan, how about you? Well, this was my first time to see it, and sounds like Aaron and I may be the only two that that was the case for. Um, so when I was watching it, I, I think like Aaron kind of said, I was expecting like Clue mm-hmm. or uh, something like Knives Out, um, but it definitely had a lot more drama elements to it. But I think what stuck out to me, honestly, were the comedic elements. Um, and I think it wasn't like one-liners so much. I mean, there were definitely some of those, but I think it was just the general great characterization behind all these characters, especially the Carlotta character and the Gene Harlow character. Uh, but even the, uh, the matriarch, uh, the good, Billy Burke, Billy Burke, she was good in it. Um, and I just enjoyed a lot of that more than anything else. My big major disappointment in this movie is that you don't actually get to witness the dinner at eight. Yeah. I went through the whole movie thinking this is going to have a whole nother hour <laughs> and it didn't end up having it. So that's kind of like my little weird quibble with it. But I, I really enjoyed like just about everything about it. The other thing that I was thinking when I was watching it and then it was justified after we we were reading the trivia trivia at the end was I was like, this feels so much like Grand Hotel. Oh, and yeah. apparently this was the stu- this, uh, Warner Brothers MGM. answer or one of the MGM answer to the Warner Brothers. So this was like, oh, well, they can do an ensemble cast, so we're going to do one. And actually one of the things that was kind of interesting, and we didn't really watch the whole thing, but the DVD copy that Alicia owns that we watched from actually has a short on it that is 
the Warner Brothers satire version of Dinner at Eight to make fun of it. Yeah. It's pretty... It, I mean, we watched like three minutes of it, but it was funny that it even existed. Uh, so, yeah. It, I enjoyed it's, it. Uh, uh, the uh, the oh. other movie uh, was had a lot of the same cast as well. And I think they mm, made Grand it Hotel. as sort of a semi-sequel. I, but I thought MGM made both but, movies, so maybe I'm... Well, or else it may have been RKO. I can't remember, because that's MGM was a pretty new uh, company at the time that I think had just kind of formed more recently. Yeah, well, so, this was, but it might have been both MGM. It was David O. Selznick's first movie, and his name appears mm-hmm. big in the in the front of it. And his big deal was was casting. He was that's what he did. He he always got the the big stars and all that together. Um, but like both the Barrymores are in um, the was it Dinner Parade or the other movie? Oh, what was the name of it? Do you remember something parade? What, which one? The other the satire. Oh, it was called Come to Dinner. No, no, but no. It was all different the, actors in that. The satire. The movie that this was an answer Grand to. Hotel. Grand Hotel. Yeah. Yeah, Grand Hotel, and that had Greta Garbo and a lot of other. Like yeah. you said, big cavalcade. But it had stars. both the Barrymore guys, the brothers in it, and you know that yeah. stuff too. So um, Billy Burke was actually like uh, the second choice on this, and she's one of the lowest build characters. So I don't know that she was really that big of a star um, when this came out. So it kind of makes sense that she's kind of the the connective tissue of the whole thing. Um, that you know that's that's not given over to or wasted, as you might say on on. A bigger name that she's just doing her, her Glinda the Good Witch voice on the phone and being ridiculous. Um, you said there weren't like you know one-liners or stuff like that. The one like exception to that, I think, I my one of my favorite lines from the movie is uh, when uh, uh, Jean Harlow's husband says to her, uh, "Go lay an egg." <laughs> Uh, that's what stuck out. <laughs> that that was the line that just like cracked me up. It was like that's such a like thirties like eh, let's put a sock uh-huh. in it, you know, kind of thing. Like I go. Well, we, we've been jokingly, we've been jokingly using the word nitwit a lot since we watched it. I was gonna uh, yeah, the- refer to all of you as ducky when I introduced you today. <laughs> <laughs> so Alicia, uh, what yeah. the hell? Well. You know, I had bought this box set of DVDs years ago, uh, and that was in it, Dinner at Eight. And I was kind of looking through it, and and like the other stuff in the box set was like Bringing Up Baby and To Be or Not To Be and stuff like that. And so I've seen those a lot. And so I was like, you know what? I I know I watched it years ago, but I haven't really watched Dinner at Eight in years, and I don't really remember what it's about. So I thought, let's do it. And I, too, kind of thought it'd be more of a zanier more screwball comedy kind of thing in the line with some of those other movies that were in the set. But yeah, I had forgotten about a lot of those dramatic parts. Um, I had seen Grand Hotel years ago, and I think, honestly, I think it's a superior movie to this one um, in a lot of ways, but maybe some of that's the Greta Garbo in there too. But there were things I really liked about this. Billy Burke, again, just listening to her on the phone, I could just listen to that for a long time. I don't know how you listen to that like at double speed, Dale, or whatever you were doing, because she already talked pretty fast. But uh, I also oh, really like. When liked... I speed it up, it doesn't change the pitch. Oh, okay. So, uh, and Marie Dressler is great. I've seen quite a few Marie Dressler movies, even though her career, at least in, I guess we'd say talkies, is kind of short because she died shortly after this. But. You know, I really like her playing against her type in this, which, of course, they make a lot of jokes about at the beginning and talking about what a great beauty she is and all this kind of thing, which is some of the fun. Uh, you know, I saw her and uh, uh, is it Walter Berry that's in this as well in Men and Bill years ago, and that was really great. And uh, I think she was kind of a loss because she was... Yeah, there you go. Wallace Berry, and I, I think she was uh, really great at, at those comedic elements, and I really enjoyed her. And, and you know, it's fun to see Jean Harlow. I think Jean Harlow brings a little fun and glamour to a lot of things. She's kind of doing that, you know, the type. I mean, we see that type of role, the platinum blonde, who's not real bright and maybe, you know, comes from the wrong side of town yeah, in a lot of she's movies. she's the only but, one without a mid-Atlantic accent in the movie. Right. Well, because she's not in the same class right. as most of the others, but but uh, you know, I like 
I, I kept getting annoyed, but also enjoying how she talked to her maid all the time, which was kind of funny. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and that's kind of where the nitwick, stupid, hey, stupid, why don't you dummy, and all this kind of stuff constantly with the maid. Uh, and then it was, you know, it's fun to see her wardrobe, you know, and I guess the dress she wears to the dinner party ends up becoming known as the Jean Harlow because of how famous that, that look was that she pulls off in the movie. So there's a lot of good things about the movie. I don't think I enjoyed it as much as I thought I would, and I f- had forgotten a lot of it, but... Yeah, I mean, it is it is a time capsule, I think, for the time and what studios were doing on those big studio pictures and bringing it all out for their audiences and all the big stars. Yeah, so three of the female stars of the movie died within three years of this movie being made. Um, oh, wow. Marie Dressler, uh, who played Carlotta Vance. Uh, Louise Clauser-Hale, who played Hattie, um, the old cousin lady that they call in at the last minute. Um, and... Uh, of course, Jean Harlow herself um, died when she was 26. So, all within three years of making this movie. I did think that the uh, the the topicality of even the rich getting poorer in the middle of the yeah. depression was kind of interesting. Uh, and you know, because I mean, we've all seen like the Grapes of Wrath and some of those movies that are talking about those that were hit the hardest. Um, so it was. I think it was kind of refreshing to hear, you know, the upper middle class or upper class dealing with the same problems from their perspective and uh, what that looked like, at least from their, the movie's perspective. Well, yeah, and like the big comedies at the time were all poking fun at the rich. It was um, yeah. like Marx Brothers and the Three Stooges. Like that was when the, they were big, and the big deal was them like throwing pies at rich people's faces and you know that sort of thing and kind of tearing them down a notch um that sort of post-depression or, or during the depression i guess era uh pre-world war ii um thing that was going on um i immediately recognized lionel barrymore's voice and i was like oh he, yeah he was in another depression movie uh it's a wonderful life he's mr potter and it's a wonderful life oh. Yes, he is. Like, as soon as I heard his voice, it's like, yeah, Mr. Potter. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm sure that's his most memorable role, for sure. Yeah. In modern times, anyways. Um, and uh, John Barrymore, who Aaron talked about um, playing, like, the alcoholic uh, guy that ends up committing suicide, the actor, um, I guess he really... Uh, wanted to play that role and a lot of people thought of that as being very brave because he kind of was that guy um he was an alcoholic um he didn't live very much longer than this movie and um sort of faded away and and went broke and all that and so he really just kind of went for it in this movie he's like yep i can play this and that's what he did so yeah i think i think his performance is probably probably the most uh interesting of the whole thing um to watch i felt like he had more screen time than everybody else did but maybe it was just i was just more engaged by that part of the movie than the rest of it um you know gene harlow and the maid was fun but it was like okay all right you know we can move on um and you know Carlotta Vance and and the the whole uh, the whole like stock takeover thing the uh, <laughs> that whole the intrigue about uh, the like hostile takeover that uh, uh, Wallace Beery or as I call him old school Walter Matthau was performing against uh, Lionel Barrymore's character you know it was kind of this subplot and yeah you do expect that like all of these things are giving you information so that when they sit down to dinner and start talking, you know about these like secrets and whether or not they're going to come out and all of that. And it's like, Nope. Like when I saw them start walking to dinner, I checked uh, the time and it was like 25 seconds left. It's like, Oh, <laughs> all right then. <laughs> yeah. I was, I was kind of thinking in my mind, I, I was comparing it a little bit to game of Thrones, uh, which probably is a silly <laughs> reference, but <laughs> In that, in that, what makes Game of Thrones so good 
is even though it has this giant ensemble cast, all the best scenes in Game of Thrones are typically one character talking to another sure. character. They pair them up in different ways through different episodes, and, and they all have different vibes with each other but that's what makes that show so intriguing to watch is all these like one-on-one conversations that are just hard to pass yeah who would have thought and i think that's what this movie kind of did yeah like who would have thought that Arya stark and tywin lannister would be the greatest conversation in game of thrones history but it was <laughs> right. like right for however many weeks they they did it it was awesome but oh. yeah um, I would I would probably watch Dinner at Eight again. I don't know if I'll watch Game of Thrones again. <laughs> sort of retro- retroactively uh, ruined for me. It's like this isn't going anywhere good, guys. This is this is not going anywhere fun. So bad. So uh, <laughs> yeah, if they ever come out, I will See, read the I w- books, but uh, not uh, not sticking around for watching seasons eight, seven, and eight again. How about the spinoffs, assuming they materialize? It's so weird. Like, I don't know. Um, like, you know, they've, they've talked about... The thing that probably intrigued me the most was the idea of them doing prequels to it. So it's, you know, way in the past, or, you know, they talk about, like, the Targaryens, you know, from, like, 500 years ago or something. I think that could be interesting, but at the same time, there's, like... There's shows like The Witcher that just do a really great job of being these sort of medieval TV shows based on successful books that are really episodic and interesting um, that don't go the full serial route, the full giant cast route. You know, The Witcher has like five principles in it and it does cut itself up and those five are in different storylines at different times, but... Uh, I don't know something in, in, in as grand of scope in the Game of Thrones universe that doesn't have a basis in the books because that's where I think the show went wrong is they ran out of source material and what the writers came up with to finish it even with the main plot points that they had wasn't any good and so I don't know without another series by George R. R. Martin which is <laughs> impossible at this point um, I, I don't see those being, you know, nearly as in, interesting. Well, it's it's a little bit of oversaturation too. Like, I mean, we've been watching Game of Thrones every year for a little ten while. years. We could use a break. I mean, quite frankly, I mean, you you look at a lot of music careers or movie careers. If you if if you see too much of somebody, you get to a point where you just don't want to. But like with it's with Game of Thrones, like the way they were talking about spinning it off, it's not going to be any of the characters we know. So it's like, well, okay. I mean, it's in it's set in Westeros, and it's some of the family names are familiar to us, you know. But it's like the great great grandfathers of the Starks and the Targaryens and all of that sort of thing, you know. If they tried to make a, a show out of, um out of the war that Robert Baratheon and Ned Stark waged against the Targaryens and try to like, you know, have another show that had Ned Stark in it. It's like, that wouldn't be interesting to me. Like, I know where that ends. I know how that goes. Um, and I don't want to see like Arya, the teen years, Arya, the <laughs> Arya at 25, you know, what's she up to? You don't want, you don't want to see her goth phase. <laughs> I would watch that show. <laughs> Wait, wasn't the whole show her goth phase? <laughs> well, they should they should just do like a modern show and then reveal at the end of it that it was just Arya wearing different people's faces in every episode. Mm-hmm. She's just for mm-hmm. no reason she's in this. Like at the end of Perry Mason, just turns out that she was like all the bad guys in Perry Mason. <laughs> Cuz that show's already oh bananas. God. Um, <laughs> but yeah, as far as like, uh, movies from this era, um, the movies that I watch more often, um, from the thirties are the comedies like the Marx brothers and that sort of stuff. 
a um, little bit of WC Fields here and there. Um, Three Stooges shorts, mm-hmm. which a lot of people, it, I mean, they're polarizing. You either love them or hate them, usually based on uh, whether you have a Y chromosome or not. <laughs> but uh, that's kind of the stuff that I'm into. Do you guys have other favorite movies of that era or similar? You said that the... Uh, the uh, Grand Hotel was a better version of this. I think so. I mean, they're all a lot of melodrama and often based on plays and things like that. Sure. But I like that one a little bit better. But I would agree. I usually tend to do more of the uh, comedies from this time. Like I mentioned before, some of the other ones even that came in that box set, To Be or Not To Be. Uh, I, I'm a huge fan of The Thin Man. Um and, and you know some of that really early Hepburn stuff, early even early Cary Grant. I love Cary Grant pretty much throughout time, but stuff he did with Mae West, you know she done him wrong, that kind of thing. And uh, Nathan and I went back when we could go to uh, a screening of Gold Diggers of 1933, which I had seen before, and he had never seen, and that was a lot of fun. And you know those Buzz Berkeley musicals are kind of fun at the time as well, and have some comedy in there as well. I wouldn't say I have a ton of experience in that era, um, but I, I think among my favorites would be like kind of the obvious Casablanca, um, The Grand Illusion, which but I'd watched one time before that. I think that's a fantastic movie. Um, there's there's a lot of like darker movies. Anything with Humphrey Bogart. Well, Casablanca is like nine years after this. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's kind of tough. It, once you get into that World War era, it kind of changes quite a bit in the post-production code. But there's a lot of overlap, kind of the late 30s and early 40s. Yeah, and a lot of those things were, you know, stage plays that they turned into. I mean, even the Marx Brothers movies were stage uh, shows before they were movies. And Vaudeville and a lot of them mm-hmm. feel like it, too. Um, there's a scene. There's a scene in Dinner at 8 um kind of early on and it's one of the scenes where you see more of the set than the others uh but like billy burke and lionel barrymore have their back to the camera and they're talking and somebody else comes in and so you're kind of watching all of that and then billy burke turns and walks toward the camera and you can tell there's only one microphone in the room because you can't hear a damn word they say when they have their backs to you but as soon as she turns around she starts to get louder and louder as she walks forward so um, the Marx Brothers movies, the, the like famous thing to look for is whenever they do a song, the chorus is all one microphone. So they just sound like, rah, 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 rah. it's like, you can't understand a word anyone's saying. <laughs> like the, uh, the Captain Spaulding song is the one that's like really coming to mind. There's like, all right for Captain Spaulding. You can't hear any words. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, well, it is about you, Aaron. What, what what are your big big movies from this era? Uh, my big movies from this era was I. This would have been a little bit before that, but um, I was a huge Universal horror fan. Um, Lon Chaney, absolutely love Lon Chaney. One of my favorite. Oh, yeah, he's great. Favorite movies of all time is his Phantom of the Opera from the twenties. Yeah. Um, London After Midnight's really good. Hunchback of Notre Dame. Um, the Unholy Three, Tower of Lies. Those are all pretty good. Yeah, Dracula was like After, early 30s, I think. With Bella Lugosi. Yeah. Yeah, most of those would have happened there. And then after that, pretty, pretty long drought for me. I, I got... Um, I can't really think of any movies that happened in the 40s and 50s that I watched a lot of. Um, but I liked uh, Hammer Horror movies. Those were all terrible and wonderful at the same time. Um, but, yeah. I, I pretty much stick to my horror movies. Yeah, Dracula was uh, 1931, so... And that was kind of what kicked off the universal monster thing where there was a new movie every year that Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff were always in and they would reverse who was the villain and who wasn't every other year. So 
Uh, I mean, th- those were good movies. Yeah. So, have you ever seen the Spanish Dracula? No. I don't think I have. So when they shot the Bela Lugosi Dracula on the same sets and at the same time, like the the American cast would go home, and then they would shoot the entire movie over again in Spanish with a different cast. And there's elements of the Spanish version that are better than the U.S. version or the English version. Mm. So it's kind of an interesting thing to go look at, especially if you watch them back to back and kind of look at what they do differently between the two. Interesting. Did like they have a completely different like director and, and producer and all that? I believe so, yeah. But it was mm. like they they had the rights to the character um, and they wanted to make a Spanish version. Um, and so like just to save time and money, they shot both movies at the same time, like eight hours with this crew, eight hours with that crew, <laughs> like back to back to back and, and churned them both out. And so there's a Spanish language version of Dracula with a different actor in it. Um, all in Spanish. That's uh, I'll have to, like I'll have to find some that. of the special effects are different, like the post production they did on it and stuff like that is different. Um, so it's kind of an interesting, an interesting look into how to make two different movies on the same, the same set, basically the same budget. So um, it is my turn to make a suggestion, um, and I will tell you what I'm suggesting. It is the movie Trust which was uh, made in 2010, mainly seen in the U.S. in 2011. It's the directorial debut of David Schwimmer. Um, And it's a very interesting uh, film, very um, tough subject matter. I'll put it that way. Um, But I don't want to give too many details about it. Um, It's kind of along the lines of um, dealing with bringing up uh, kids in the modern era and sort of the dangers and pitfalls that go along with that. Okay. But thanks, everybody, for discussing Dinner at 8. And uh, thanks, everyone, to uh, tuned in and listened. And we'll see you on the next episode of the Deeply Discussing Movie Podcast. <laughs>